Welcome to Us with me, Dr. Crystal Lee Crane, where we have critical conversations on the challenges of our time. Come dig in with me and my guests as we tackle critical discussions about the hard lines we draw regarding morality, inequality, and the spirit. Listen while we focus on the intersections of truth and justice as we learn how to coexist, pushing our social transformation to the next level. Let's get ready to be inspired and engage in questions about humanity and believe in a different world. As we look forward to listeners who want to experience media from an intersectional and healing justice perspective. Us with Dr. Crystal Lee starts now. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Crystal Lee Crane, and you are listening to us on Transformation Talk Radio. Stay with us for the next hour with the brilliant leader, president of the Ogala Sioux Tribe, Kevin Killer. Leadership in our country takes many forms. For today's episode, I'm honored to speak with a longtime trailblazer, President Kevin Killer of the Ogala Sioux Tribe in South Dakota. I first met Kevin in 2006 when we were both Young People Four Fellows, a project of People for the American Way Foundation in DC. Since then, I've watched his world expand and his commitment deepen as he works to bolster the gifts of his tribe while advocating for access in the halls of power of American government. The United States of America has a complicated and brutal history, one that includes the removal and genocide against Native Americans. Tayaki Alford writes, in order to decolonize themselves, Canadians and Americans have to sever the emotional attachment to their countries and reimagine themselves, not as citizens with privilege conferred by descendants of colonizers or newcomers from other parts of the world that are benefiting from white imperialism, but as human beings in equal and respectful relation to other human beings and to the environment. That is what radical imagination could look like. As we learn from President Kevin Killer, we explore topics of leadership, democracy, and hope. Know your own divine magic and extend peace and love to all with Reiki master and author, Brett Bevel. Brett offers empowering solutions with energy healing modalities, magical awakening, and psychic Reiki. Brett's latest book, Healing Racism Within, A Lightworker's Guide, draws on his own journey of growing up in a racist community and healing childhood trauma. For more on the most cutting-edge energy healing techniques, visit brettbevel.com. Does your life often feel like an emotional tsunami where rogue waves crash down on you, leaving you feeling hopeless and wondering if it will ever end? Do you wish to awaken the dormant strength inside of you? Imagine what it would be like to turn your pain into purpose. Start today by scheduling a complimentary consultation with Martinet. Dive into your healing journey and begin to see your life in a new light. Visit martineemmons.com and make your appointment today. On the Spiritual Freedom Show, you will hear the voice of an extraterrestrial master speaking through my teacher, Dr. George King, as it was recorded over 60 years ago. I'm Richard Lawrence, and on this podcast, I bring you the nine freedoms, which I believe to be the greatest wisdom on earth, with practical ways to give global service and attain enlightenment. Optimize your breast cancer screening without any radiation or pain. Effective, sensitive, and widely used thermal imaging in Europe is now available to you here in the U.S. 
using state-of-the-art FDA-approved camera, Eastside's first and only breast thermography clinic is now open in Bellevue. Safe, sensitive, low cost, no referrals needed. Contact Holistique Medical Center at 425-451-0404 or on the web, drdarvish.com. Kevin Killer is an enrolled member and president of the Oglala Sioux Tribe, where he served 10 years in the South Dakota Legislature, representing a district that includes the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. He is also the co-founder of Advanced Native Political Leadership, which seeks to train the next generation of Native leaders to run, manage, and lead successful campaigns. He attended Lakota College and was the first Tribal College Fellow of a progressive youth leadership development organization called Young People Four. Let's welcome Kevin Killer to us. So, uh, just for a second, how are you? Oh, busy. So, <laughs> so it's, the job's nuts. Um, it's it's like literally, um, there's no no days ever the same. Um, I got a I got a fairly good council to work with. You know, um, there's 21 of us um, on council, and uh, there's five executive board members. Yeah, um, so a lot of people to kind of manage and manage relationships and stuff like that, um, and it, it, for the most part, it, it's just been a different learning curve, you know, being a, uh, versus being a legislator, being like in, in a being a, in an executive role of where you know you have to make decisions, um, but then you couple that with some of the issues that come along with property and everything, and how that's magnified. Um, it's, it's, it's been really interesting actually. So, um, so yeah, so it's, but it, it literally no days rarely ever the same. So, so you just have to be used to that, you know? Yeah. Well, thank you for, for fitting in some time with me. For sure. Um, yeah. So, so I would, if you would, um, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what your um, role is as president of the Oglala Sioux tribe. Sure. Um, that's our traditional greeting of Lakota. I shake your hand with a warm and good heart. My Lakota name is Close to Earth, and English name is Kevin Killer. Uh, I am currently the president of the Ogallala Sioux Tribe. We're located in the southwest corner of South Dakota. Uh, we have approximately a little bit over 50,000 tribal members. We're one of the larger tribes in the United States. Um, and we, we, uh, we have a few treaties that helped establish our sovereignty. Uh, the Treaty of 1851 and the Treaty of 1868, both called the Fort Laramie Treaties. Um, those kind of helped establish our boundaries on what we know today as the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Uh, previously, I served in the role as a state legislator for 10 years. Um, I served in the House of Representatives for eight years, state Senate for two years, um, thought I was done with office and actually um, had a calling to come back to office and or actually to run again. And, um, and then I ended up getting elected. So that, that's kind of what I'm doing here today. And, um, and me and Crystal Lee, we both met through this organization called YP4, uh, amazing organization. Um, but, um, and, you know, we just stayed in contact and, uh, just did different programs together and, and it's just good to see you and be, be in the space with you for a little while. 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we met uh, in 2006, I believe, um, a long, long time ago. Different lives, but same hearts, right? And, I, and, and same commitment to the work. And that's why I really wanted to have you on. So there's a couple of things that have been happening, in particular with the Department of Interior, um, with Deb Holland's work. Um, two things, one in particular, the the renaming of national parks and lands from squaw to other things. Um, and then of course, the unfortunate um, and untimely telling of the truth around the Indian burial grounds that um, and the, the Indian boarding schools. So can you speak to those issues and, and how they're showing up in your work? Sure. Um, no, thank you, Crystal Lee. I mean, those are really important um, issues. You know, I mean, part of it is, you know, I know that we have a little bit of time uh, and, and I can kind of share because it, it's a little bit more in depth, especially from my experience. And um, and I kind of got into some of the truth and healing work, actually, um, while I was in the legislature and we were working on a bill. Um, well, actually, a bill came before a committee. I served on judiciary for eight years while I was in the in the House of Representatives, and there was a, a particular bill that was kind of interesting, and it said that it, was, it would limit the claims of victims of different um, lawsuits and all that, but that was actually, and it was kind of word, it wasn't, it was very, you know, it was really innocuous, and, and it was something that was just a couple word changes and all that. And usually, um, when you're in the legislature, you, you, you know, those are usually just, you know, House, house painting bills, stuff like that. You know, they're just trying to, you know, make the process a little bit better. But also, too, you got to be careful because, you know, sometimes the way these are worded, um, it's changing, like, the whole mechanism in place, you know, of what, you know, of affecting people's rights. And when that bill came before our committee in 2010, um, it was basically targeted at any survivors of boarding school abuse, and this would have been around the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, of where they had policies in place where, you know, if um, children residing on reservations, uh, they didn't, they didn't, um, they didn't opt to go to the local school. They got sent to boarding schools, and in a lot of these boarding schools, um, you know, they, they they recruited people from all over the country, usually run ran, ran under um, you know a uh, dominant denomination. And, and these 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 schools, you know, Catholic schools, uh, Presbyterian, whatever, um, they would you know they would get the contract, mm-hmm. and the the uh, the school itself would recruit the students and get them in there and stuff like that. But usually these students would stay away for a long time, and you know they and at some of the schools, I would say all of them because you know they're still doing research and all that into it, and it, it's kind of going back to the question you asked, but. Um, but, you know, at these schools, they would actually, you know, some of these children, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, would be subject to sexual abuse, physical abuse, just violence, you know, just all, all kind of all kind of ways. And in some states, you know, they, they started to look at that and say, what's the process? You know, how do we go back and rectify make these people whole again uh, through this process? And I think other states start looking at how do they, you know, deal with Native native boarding schools and children that were there that grew up to be adults. And, and unfortunately in South Dakota, you know, they, they sought to limit that process. So they basically wanted to limit it to, I think, uh, what was it at the time? I think it was like, if that, if a offense occurred within 20 years or, you know, they, they will let you file a claim, but if it was after 20 years, 
um, you couldn't file a claim. And before that law took place, it was just kind of, you know, there was no, there was no issue. So obviously there was a, you know, intention behind it. And that's how I kind of got involved with it because after that law was passed um, and, you know, we, we fought hard to kind of try to get it down. Um, there were some sisters that came forward and there was like five or six of them. Um, and they all attended a boarding school in South Dakota, I think Eastern South Dakota. And, you know, they, they, you know, I literally sat there with them for, you know, two whole days, you know, just hearing their testimony and, you know, all, you know, all of them in their sixties and seventies, just, you know, recounting, um, just the violence that they experienced and sexual violence, physical violence. And it was really sad because, you know, like, like in that, it's like, you know, you think about your own grandma or your own grandpa, you know, and, and even your own parents and, you know, how did that affect them how did that you know how did that pass down through generations and, and you begin to see um you begin to you begin to see kind of like this um this this wave of um just just healing you know like just this outright healing that needs to take place and but also you know like like one of the first steps in that is telling the truth and and so you know we we took that bill forward through different ways and different uh, phases, I think since 2012, and you know, I ended up transitioning out of the legislature in 2018. But you know, every every year after 2012, we'd introduce that bill that would bring and hopefully rectify and repeal that law. And we were fought by different industries. Um, you know, the Catholic Church in South Dakota would oppose it. The um, actually the insurance companies in South Dakota would oppose it. Um, so is this kind of really unique partners that, you know, that, that, you know, I thought was interesting that, you know, like who would want to be associated with that kind of history and why wouldn't you want to make these communities and people whole again, you know, especially like under the guise that, you know, we, we practice in this country that, you know, um, you know, we have a legal system to kind of help people become whole again, you know, and I, and I think that's probably like one of the best ways that, that one of the things I learned. And so after I decided to transition out of the legislature, um, I took a fellowship with, uh, I think it was Open Society Institute, just to study kind of all the work that we've been doing. And part of it was that I really wanted to look at how other communities, like Native communities in the United States, were affected by uh, these kind of issues. Because, you know, the other thing, again, going back into history and going back to where, um, you know, to your question, um, the... The, uh, the whole idea around our schools and our communities and all this kind of stuff is that, you know, like right in the middle of our reservation, we have Wounded Knee. And, you know, Wounded Knee and its infamy and, you know, it's infamous for being one of the uh, <clears throat> a large massacre site. But people are attracted to that. And, you know, over the years, I noticed that when people come, um, you know, they leave kind of with a profound sense of, you know, this, this kind of hurt. And just, you know, just trying to, you know, like understand their own history and their own connection. And, 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 you know, as an indigenous person of this land, you know, I wanted to go actually see what it was like for other indigenous communities and other areas. And so, you know, actually I started to look at the African-American experience in, in this country. And, you know, is was, was where, you know, like, like, you know, starting over in, um, I think it was Alabama, and, you know, understanding that, you know, how did people get to there? And then part of that fellowship experience is actually going during the year of the return, um, which was 2019, I believe, uh, you know, going, going with a group with the NAACP over to Africa 
and going to Ghana and going, you know, just, just going with them on that experience. Because, I, you know, again, I wanted to see what, what it was like as an indigenous person to go to another indigenous people's area and just see what that process would be like. And, um, and so from there, you know, I was just kind of left with a lot of this stuff. And, and uh, so when I, you know, had a calling to run again for office, this just kind of came all together, you know, with Secretary Holland getting a, you know, being a nominated for Secretary of Interior and, and having this boarding school report come out, um, you know, the renaming of, of different areas, which is another bill that I worked on. I, I could talk about because I'm sure you're going to ask me another question, but, um, but, you know, just, just seeing that whole feeling that, you know, how important history is to, you know, to a lot of these issues. And, and because I, I think once, you know, we begin to examine history and have a strong understanding of it, it's like, you know, you know, nobody else can tell your community um, what you can or cannot do because you understand that history, you know, inside and out and you understand how it got to that point. And um, yeah, so that, that, that's kind of where, um, you know, that, that, that's kind of a long, long answer to that question, but I'm sure it's bringing up other stuff and I'm happy to talk about that. Yeah, and I, I think that's really important, the the thing that you brought out around the backlash and and having folks trying to rewrite history through policy. So then they you can't tell the truth. That's what they think, right? Um, that you're not able to actually um, have all of those truths be known, whether justice can be had in the legal system or not, right? It's quite offensive for them to take that act as if it's going to stick. Yep. Um, you know, we're talking about the renaming as well. And one thing that I, I found... Um, on the Department of Interior website is they have this option for public comment for folks to, you know, there's already some recommendations, but looking forward, of course, you know, my home state of Michigan, I'm looking and seeing, um, there's one in my home county, Genesee County, that I'm going to add public comment to. Um, so I appreciate the participatory nature of that piece. Um, what are some ways that you worked on that that shift and that change? Yeah, sure. Um so again, you know, while I was in the legislature in South Dakota, um, you know, and, and it was kind of part of the the, the truth and healing in, in, a, in a weird way, you know, it kind of came full circle. But, um, you know, I, I think that there was some frustration in, in being a, a younger person in office, you know, getting elected at 29 in 2008 um, and not understanding all these different mechanisms in place that were held met to, um, you know, this question and, you know, you know, I, and question our history, you know, and, and through a legal means, <laughs> like you're saying. And and I think that, you know, you're beginning, and I, I was beginning to understand, okay, well, what what is the antithesis to that process? And really looking and examining laws, like you're saying, is just going through, you know, that public comment period, you know, really, um, you know, using those mechanisms to document and tell our truth, tell our history. And one of the laws that were in place in South Dakota was, an interesting law where you can actually rename a county with the consent of two thirds of all registered voters in South Dakota. And I mean, not in South Dakota, in that county. And in, um, at the time it was called Shannon County. And so you begin to like examine and look at Shannon County and how it, you know, who, who was it named after? How did it get that name? Even, even that kind of stuff is really interesting when you begin to look at, you know, how are these people associated with either, you know, affecting native rights, um, you know, affecting African-American rights, affecting movement in different kind of ways. So you, I guarantee you go down to the South and see how they have some of these counties are named. You would, you know, it'd be, it wouldn't be a pretty history, you know, and, 
And just looking at how Shannon County was named, it was actually named after this judge from the East Coast. He ended up in South Dakota. And you think back in the day, um, you know, in the 1860s, it wasn't easy to get to South Dakota from Philadelphia. You know? And, um, it, and uh, you know, you had to take a train. Was, it, was, it was hard to get there. Um, and and uh, anyway, so when, when, when the guy got there, he was, uh, you know, he just did different stuff within, I, I believe at the time it was the Republican Party. But, you know, and he kind of rose to the ranks to where he eventually became a territorial judge in the area. But I think he was dismissed from office because of different, you know, um, reasons that, that weren't too good. Um, but he, you know, like in that whole process, you know, he was able to get this little area where our, our most of our reservation resides and, and it consists of. It's called Shannon County. And uh, Shannon County actually, um, you know, is one of the most democratic counties in the United States per capita. And um, I think we had the highest per capita rate for President Obama in 2008 and almost, I think, in 2012. Um, so it shows that, you know, that, that we, we uh, you know, we, we're, we vote a certain way. Um, but, you know, I was thinking about, okay, well, who is this person? Because when you Google his name, nothing would come up. So we literally had to go through records and, and find out who he was. And then we found out all this history about him. And he was actually the person who kind of helped coordinate the commissions that would come and take, you know, and would propose to take land from natives. And, um, you know, and just having that kind of history and having, you know, that kind of name, you know, in your community named after you, it's like, wow, that's kind of crazy. And he was a, like a nefarious person in South Dakota history because he had a, you know, pretty bad judicial record too of being corrupt and all this kind of stuff. And so there wasn't a lot of, you know, there wasn't a lot of uh, um, support for him. And, and the, the crazy part is that, you know, he ended up, uh, you know, he had this county named after him. And then um, I think after he kind of got, you know, uh, you know, pushed out the state for nefarious reasons, he ended up, you know, passing away in San Diego. And um, he was buried in a public park where kids were playing. And we actually went to the park and see, and it was this, you know, it was this grass. There's nothing there to commemorate or anything like this. And so, again, you know, you have to go through all these steps this kind of stuff. So when we actually began to share that history with our own community and help people kind of, you know, wake up and say, hey, you know, do you want this county named after you or do you want it named after Owal Lakota? I mean, that was an easy, that was an easy choice, you know, for a lot of people. So, you know, ultimately, I think the ballot initiative passed like by 82% to 18%. And, um, you know, and this, again, this point to that history and understanding that that's who we are, you know, and that's what we need to do but it's also really makes some unique stories and unique, unique things, because I think we're in a time right now, uh, just as communities of color to begin to, you know, examine this history and retell this history to larger masses that we didn't have available to us, but also other areas, you know, through, you know, film distribution, through what we're doing now, through YouTube, you know, I mean, like, like you said, when we, when we first met, we could have never imagined that we would actually be communicating, doing this kind of stuff, but also just sharing our stories with a larger audience and, and around the things that we actually cared about, so. I, I appreciate that so much. I mean, the world was much different when we were getting organized in 2006. Um, and to think about it in the Bush era, right? We were in the Bush era and that feels like five lifetimes ago um, with everything that we've been through politically. And, you know, we're, we're coming into the midterms, um, you know, across the country and, I'm wondering what are voting rights looking like in South Dakota for, for native voters and, and how is that 
um, something that's a part of your role as, as president of the tribe? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think yeah, I, I would encourage, you know, anybody, you know, watching this podcast um, to kind of look at this, this is a book called Custer Died for Your Sins. And it's by Vine Deloria. Um, and, and it's an amazing book because it actually talks about, um, you know, I mean, even the title Custer Died for Your Sins, you know, like the, the uh, you know, infamy of, of Custer, General George Custer and all that, um, you know, says a lot, even, you know, that's an amazing title because it, it, it Vine Deloria himself was an amazing thinker and writer and stuff like this. But, you know, he always like one of the main things from that book that I always remember is that, you know, he always talked about how native communities were basically the minor, the mine, the, the canaries minor for a lot of other communities in terms of that, you know, you know, however native communities get treated is a future indication of how other areas are going to be treated. And especially around rights and, and voting rights and stuff like that. And, um, you know, all the stuff that, uh, I think it was, uh, um, Stacey Abrams was kind of working on working towards in Georgia and she laid out an amazing example, an amazing, um, you know, uh, blueprint, but, but because she was, you know, able to have so much success out there, you know, through Georgia, you've seen all these laws kind of come into place. Like, you know, you can't get people water in line, you can't get food out, you can't do this. But actually in 2010, you know, we can we had that same type of success, um, you know, like from different elections. And in, I think in 2000, and, let's say 2006, um, you know, in 2008, there was different laws passed, but in 2010, they actually made a law where you can't, you know, give food to people, you know, as a, you know, as an exchange for a vote. And, um, you know, and one of the things that, you know, when you come and campaign in our communities for Native people, um, it, it, you know, one of the things that, you know, we look at, at our leaders and if they're able to provide food if they're able to provide you know some kind of resources because it's an indication that they they actually care about the community that you're going to feed your people you know you're going to sit there and that's like one of the basic um tenets to to just being a leader is that you have to at least be able to show you can feed your people and so you know i think different campaigns um for the for the most for the better part caught on to that they said okay well we just want to provide resources and meals for people um, and we're going to make sure that we do this in a good way and, you know, in, in, a, in accordance with your, your uh, community practices. And, and, you know, when it started, you know, when people started saying, okay, well, I'm going to show up for the meal, then I'm going to vote, you know, it, it kind of became this um, kind of this red herring in other people's minds that, oh, they're exchanging food for votes, which wasn't the truth. It was actually a way to honor your community and give back and stuff like that. And so non-Native elected officials were recognizing that. And, and, you know, I think that's one of the biggest things that, um, you know, people need to realize that, you know, again, like, you know, how these communities get treated is going to be a role, you know, it's going to be a roadmap to how other communities get treated. They have success in this area because you've seen what happened in Georgia. And I think in Florida that happened, um, you know, they just had these different laws that took place and, and understanding that, you know, this is uh, so important that we, you know, work together, we, we, we move together and we kind of learn from each other's um, communities about what they're doing because it's important that, that we elect those leaders who can respect our traditionals, our, our customs, you know, just, just what the community is going through because, you know, um, if we don't have those kind of people, then, then um, you know, it's just going to be hard to, to work with them and to get them to understand policies and, and uh, 
that are important for our community. Right, and I think something that that you've spoken to and the different stories you're telling is like this idea that there's there's a playbook for different forms of oppression of how they're trying to work this out, whether they're going to le try to legalize, um, you know, rewriting or just not writing history, right? Um, if they're going to use you know different parts of the judicial system or the legislative system to do so, um, or if they're going to use weapon. Um, education as a weapon and weaponize it, right? For for it to be used as a tool for cultural assimilation. So there's all these different ways, right? In different areas that we have to fight back, right? And I know that as folks who are, you know, as I say, deep in it, right? Like, this is what we do. This is our life, right? Um, with all of these extremes, you know, I'm always trying to kind of think about like, how do you find hope, right? How do you, how do you, um, how are you able to to receive and experience joy? while we fight against these, you know, terrible, unnecessary and brutal, you know, oppressive forces in our lives. Um, I think, you know, is is again, you know, like where we met is, you know, we we're, we we're both young and, you know, I think people saw hope in us that, you know, we were going to kind of help carry some of, you know, some of, uh, you know, you know, understand and learn that as young people, we're going to carry these issues forward, um, you know, and our ancestors that were fighting and all this kind of stuff for, for these, these types of issues that we're going to carry that forward. And even having this conversation, you know, is, is hopeful because I, I think it's us, you know, recognizing at 2006, knowing each other for almost literally over 15 years, you know, we're still carrying this forward um, in different capacities and, and, and just in different uh, positions, but also coming together and, you know, just being able to check on each other. And I think one of the biggest, you know, things that gives me hope is seeing this younger generation's, um, you know, recognition or recognizing that mental health is a big component of, you know, this, this healing process. And I think, you know, that, that, you know, our generation that we didn't have that much exposure or emphasis on the mental health component, um, not that it wasn't there, it just wasn't talked about or shared about or acknowledged as much. And, I think that's what really gives me a lot of hope is seeing that how this this younger generation is really pushing that to the forefront you know being able to you know like like um when we met what well you know what you know what was the concept of self-care versus what it is now you know and and you know that recognition of, of doing that and and um because because i think you know I, I look at my parents and my parents um unfortunately passed my dad passed at 53 my mom passed at 64 so relatively younger um but you know, I, you know, I think if they would have had, you know, any kind of mental health services, any kind of uh, availability around health, you know, they would have been here longer. Um, hopefully I'll be here longer. And then hopefully, you know, our future generation will be here even longer uh, because of this is this new recognition on, on, on mental health. And I think that's the, the big part about Secretary Holland's report and, um, you know, just kind of like, you know, because like, I was doing an interview earlier about the same thing about, you know, there just needs to be, you know, I think like the, the report itself is the first step of that healing process. And, and, you know, and you think about everything that it took to get Secretary Holland in office, you know, she had to run for Congress and she had to, you know, then she had to do stuff at her level in New Mexico, um, you know, over that, just for that one thing to happen. And for that one report, one little report to be released, you know, but what, what's it going to open up, you know? And I think that's the thing is, is that, you know, once that opens up, it, there's there's going to be a need, a, a larger need to focus on mental health. And I think with COVID, 
um, it really exposed a lot of where things were wrong, you know, especially in our healthcare systems and mental health uh, systems. And it, it affected everybody equally, you know. Um, it didn't matter if you had a lot of resources or no resources, you know, if, if for whatever reason, if your DNA didn't, didn't accept it, you know, you were going to get affected um, one way or another. And and uh, I think that was, you know, one of the biggest wake-up calls that, that we had, you know, that's going to help carry this younger generation forward is that whole learning process. And I think that's the thing is that, you know, we just need to continue to share, continue to have these conversations for future generations because I think a lot of it was um, – a lot of this, you know, the, the, the conversations our parents had or our grandparents had, they didn't have all these forms of media. And I think that's one of the other things is that, you know, we, we're documenting this history as we go along. And, um, you know, it's really important that we do that. So, Yeah, we're making that public history, right? And, <clears throat> and that's not, and that's going to change what the future looks like in the sense where they can't say that it didn't happen because we have yeah. video, now. we have yeah. proof. Um, and I think that's that's one of the the good things about smartphones um, is that we have another form of data collection, right? And maybe we didn't consider that that was going to be what it was, but that's what it is for us in a lot of ways. And I, I'm really glad that you talked about mental health, um, mental health work and, and coaching folks has become a very big part of my work um, in, in keeping folks in the movement. And I really feel like working for liberation should be liberating, Right. It, it, it shouldn't um, it, it will hurt because we're fighting for human rights um, and it should feed us and really trying to 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 maintain that for my students, for my clients and for for myself. Right. Um, so that we can sustain it because it, it's not going to things won't change in, in the pace that they need to. and We won't be able to respond in the ways that we need to if we aren't if we aren't whole and have practices to to, to keep ourselves at the level that we need to be. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, I'm so glad you're in that field, Chris Lee, because we just need more people that care about that piece and have that experience about and, and I think that's probably one of the other things is just helping younger people learn those processes and, and, and having a process to, to really uh, find ways to cope with some of this, uh, this heavy stuff, you know, because it is, it is, you know, life changing. I mean, even when I was, you know, visiting with the sisters, about um, you know about all their stuff you know that was that was hard to sit there and process and you know just as a as a, a legislator but also just as a, a native person native man you know you're always taught is like okay well um, you kind of go into this ideology that you can't show emotion you know and it's like okay well but you know there's ways for us to process that we have our traditional ways you know we have our sweat lodges we have you know our different um, you know, sage, we have cedar, we have sweetgrass, we have, uh, you know, our vision quest that, you know, kind of serve as a reset, you know, our Sundances. Um, so we, we do have those, those things in place. And, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, doing the fellowship is it really so show to me that, you know, you can go out and, you know, each one of our indigenous communities had some kind of form of healing in their work and in their, in their lifestyles. But we've gotten so far away from that. Um, how do we reconnect to that area and who are the people that are going to help us reconnect? And so that's why I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. Thank you, love. Thank you. Join us next time on us with your loving host, Dr. Crystal Lee Crane. Thank you for listening to us. Critical conversations on the challenges of our time with me, Dr. Crystal Lee Crane on transformation talk radio.com. 
Together, we bring positive change to the world through critical conversations about social justice issues. Tune in every fourth Wednesday of every month at 3 p.m. Pacific with me, Dr. Krista Lee Crane, and my guests. For more information about Dr. Krista Lee Crane, please visit kristaleecrane.org and preventionagenda.org. Happy listening. Views expressed on this program are those of the host, guests, and callers, and do not necessarily reflect the views of the station, its management, or advertisers. You're listening to Transformation Talk Radio.